welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of People, Places, Planet Pod. My name is Dominic Chicatano, and I'm a research associate here at the Environmental Law Institute. Today's episode is another installment of a new oral history project and podcast series entitled The General Counsel's Opinions, Conversations with the Attorneys Who Have Led EPA's Office of General Counsel. As the Environmental Protection Agency prepares to celebrate its 50th anniversary in December 2020, this series will document the history of the OGC through conversations with the 12 general counsels who have led the office. ELI would like to thank Alston and Bird for supporting the General Counsel's Opinion series. Today I'm here with Kevin Minoy, a current Alston and Bird partner who was an attorney in EPA's OGC for 18 years before joining his firm. From January 2017 to January 2018, Kevin had the opportunity to lead the OGC as EPA's acting general counsel. During that time, Kevin says he would often look at the list of general counsels on the EPA's website and wonder what the time leading the office was like for each of them. The General Counsel's Opinions podcast series is a chance for Kevin and all of our listeners to hear firsthand accounts of these experiences. Kevin will be joining us throughout the series, each time for a conversation with the former EPA General Counsel. On today's episode, Kevin speaks with Roger Martella, who served as General Counsel from March 2007 to April 2008. Roger is Director and General Counsel for General Electric's Environment, Health, and Safety Operations Worldwide. In this role, Roger supervises a team of approximately 50 lawyers and EHS professionals in protecting GE's 300,000 employees and their neighbors in more than 150 countries and promoting compliance with domestic and international environmental, safety, sustainability, and climate change requirements. Prior to GE, Martella was an international environmental attorney with Sidley Austin LLP in Washington, D.C., focusing on assisting multinational corporations with environmental compliance, sustainable development, and litigation across the globe. Martella is also a member of the ELI Board of Directors. Thank you to Kevin and Roger for joining us today. Well, thank you for having us, and Roger, welcome. Thank you, Kevin. It's great to see you. It's nice Thanks to for see, inviting me. Nice to see you again as well. Uh, Roger and I had the chance to work together at EPA during his time, both as the Principal Deputy General Counsel and then as Acting General Counsel and General Counsel uh, for a few years. And so uh, why don't you just get us started by telling us how did you come about to be General Counsel? What did you do that got you in that position to be able to become uh, named and nominated and then confirmed as General Counsel for EPA? Well, I think my story is a little unusual, as prior most people's stories, but I, I went to law school um, with the single goal that I wanted to be an environmental attorney for a government agency. It's the only reason I went to law school. It's the only thing I wanted to do. Um, and so when I came out of law school, I was very excited to go work for the Justice Department, um, realizing that goal and started out doing uh, work on behalf of the Indian tribes in furtherance of the United States trust responsibility and was hired by a Democratic administration, hired by the Clinton administration, worked very closely with them, and then was moved over to what they called the general litigation section, where I worked on a lot of uh, high-profile litigation cases involving natural resource issues, which transitioned over from the Clinton administration into the Bush administration. So I was a career official uh, during all that time. 
And I think as a result of working on some pretty high profile cases and, and having some good outcomes, it got the attention of some folks who had come into the Bush administration. And so when they were looking for various people to help um, move into jobs, I, I got uh, asked by my my now mentor, uh, career mentor, Ann Clee, to come over and meet with her about the, the principal deputy job. And so for those who don't know, um, the Office of General Counsel is led by a political appointee who's the general counsel. And then the, the number two at the time, I think it's changed now in the current administration, but the number two at the time was a career person who was not political and was the principal deputy. And so you would typically serve in these career jobs and work with the political people and help be a transition to the career team. So that was that was a, a, a dream job for me, working with Ann and working with the staff at EPA and, and getting to work with this great team. Um, I had one of the reasons I wanted to come to EPA was very much I wanted to work with Ann and learn from Ann and and um, and I was I was sad that not long after I got there, I don't know if it was six or nine months, that she had decided that she was ready to move on to other things. And I was, you know, looking forward to continuing to hopefully continue to do my job as the career uh, person in, in the general counsel's office. But the, the White House had reached out to me and asked me if I would be interested in, you know, interviewing for the general counsel job, which was kind of surprised me. I was not a political person. I wasn't Republican or Democrat. I had never done anything political in my life, having been a career official. And very much, I think, to their credit, what they said is they just wanted, you know, a lawyer to, to, to you know, help channel the agency through the legal issues. They were less interested in a political person and a partisan person. They had other people doing that at EPA and in the White House, but they just really wanted a, a lawyer that they were comfortable with to get through, uh, get through the legal issues they were challenging. So I was, I was really honored and humbled that they would, you know, take a chance on someone they didn't know really well to nominate me. And then I went through that Senate confirmation process. And I think as a result of that kind of nonpartisan background, having worked for different administrations, um, went through that with the support of Barbara Boxer, Senator Obama, Senator Clinton, Senator Inhofe, um, Andy Wheeler, who at the time was working for Senator Inhofe, helped shepherd me through that whole process and was unanimously confirmed, which is something that I don't know that's happened a lot since. I think it was more a reflection of the time when people tried to work together a little better than, than anything else. But I think that's become more rare these days. And certainly it is. Um, your story is unique, having been a career official throughout your career in the government, doing the legal work and going directly then to being nominated. How did you find that your job felt, did your job feel different the day after you're confirmed into the political slot than it did the day before when you were acting or six months before when you were the principal deputy? It is different. Um, not so much in the leadership perspective, because both jobs had a lot of leadership responsibilities. If anything, as you know, Kevin, having been in that role, the, the deputy does more, I think, of the management leadership responsibilities day to day. But there's no doubt about it that when you're in a political position, even someone who was you know, working to be relatively apolitical, um, that, that the, the over, overlap of politics does come into the decision making. It is something that you have to be accountable for as a lawyer. You're always trying to make sure you're developing the best legal positions, but you do have to take into consideration the political lens, the political sensitivities. So that was something that I had uh, not had to do at other stages in my career. I would follow direction from people who were giving me, from political leaders who were giving me the direction. I'd go ahead and implement it. But now I was playing a role for the first time and maybe helping shape some of the policy direction in a way that I hadn't done. 
One more follow-up question on your on your sort of a, a transition piece. You came over from DOJ after a time there. EPA and DOJ work very closely together, but they are very different legal shops. How did you find the transition coming from the department over to EPA, and and what did you notice that was different, and what was the same? It's a really fair observation. They're both similar and different. Obviously, the Justice Department, you know, ninety five percent of its resources are put into litigation, appearing in court. And so you're more of a general practitioner, I would say. You have to have good legal skills, good litigation skills to be able to show up and be a passionate advocate for whatever matter you're working on, be a master of all trades. For example, the lawyers in the appellate division, they could work on you know three different cases in a week involving three different agencies and have to know them inside and out. At EPA, um, they have just as brilliant lawyers and dedicated lawyers but they come at things with a different lens, which is being the subject matter experts. And I, I think, you know, there's a reputation there. And to some extent, I think it's relatively well-deserved, although people are broader and more diverse than people give them credit for. But of being a real subject matter expert at EPA, maybe focusing on one provision of the Clean Air Act or a title of the Clean Air Act or Clean, Clean Water Act. And that really is a huge strength. And I think one of the things that makes EPA so special is you have people who have dedicated their entire careers to being the expert in something, knowing it better than anybody else on the planet and being able to, to both advance the rulemakings in the agency in the most defensible way, but then being that terrific client to the Justice Department that helps them stand up to court and, and sound as smart as anybody else on it when, when needed. So it's, it's a very symbiotic, collaborative relationship, particularly among the lawyers, I think, at DOJ and EPA, um, you know, the classic attorney-client relationship that I think over many years and decades has, has really worked itself out well. Being the general counsel can at times be challenging and, and isolating from the peers that used to be your colleagues, and now they see you at a different level. Uh, I like to ask people, did you have fun in the job? <laughs> it's it's a good question. I, you know, I don't know that I would use the word fun. And that's not to say that every day I didn't enjoy coming to work. I I, I did on most days, not every day. But I, I was running on adrenaline the entire time. Um, and I would start working. I start working now at 5 a.m. I have to remind myself when I was at EPA, I actually started working around 4.30 a.m. So, And I was excited to do it. I would bounce out of bed and be like, there's a lot to do. Um, Got to get a head start. And and there's something about waking up at 4.30 a.m. And, and not really wanting to and waking up at 4.30 a.m. because you want to. And that's how it was. So that was really um, very high energy, uh, a lot of adrenaline. But I, I would say... You know, I was always sensitive to the weight of the responsibility that, you know, you learn quickly as a government lawyer. One of the best pieces of advice I got, like early in my DOJ career, I think a lot of people have heard this from many people, but I thank the person who shared this with me is as a government lawyer, you have to remember it's not about you. It's not about the individual. It's not about how you're doing your performance. It's about how the issues are being handled and your role into moving those issues forward. So I, I've always taken that really seriously. That's not about me. And so I, I took the weight of the responsibility with, with, with a, a, lot of, a lot of weight um, to know that, that I was really there to help address some really complicated issues, to, to trust in the team, the career staff, who I would never you know, know these issues as well as them, but hopefully could help bring some leadership to bring the best of their advice to the table and driving the best possible outcomes. 
People who know me know that I've never seen 4.30 in the morning unless I've been <laughs> staying up working all the night before. Uh, but I do think that's, you know, your reference to that is a good reminder about how hard people at these levels continue to work. Uh, they are not figurehead positions that allow you to just enjoy your time and, and ride on other people's work. They're incredibly hard and, and people do work a, a ton of hours, even if it may not be seen by everybody at all times, because oftentimes... Uh, you're doing it at home at 4.30 in the morning. What would you say was your biggest challenge that you had to confront while, you're, while you were serving as the general counsel? You know, I'd say there, there were two. Um, one is getting to back to your point about politics. You know, having been a career lawyer, it was an adjustment for me to have to, again, come into things with a political lens, factor that in. I'd like to think I developed a bit of an honest broker relationship because I had, on one hand, credibility, I think, with career people who knew I'd come from that world. And I also had credibility, I think, with political decision makers who had put me through the process and vetted me and knew exactly what they were signing up for. So I tried to, you know, use an honest broker type reputation to try to bring some of the political decision making together with really what the career people were advising as the best course of action. I was somewhat successful in that. There were probably some times I wish I had been more successful. Um, but I think in general, being able to bridge those two things was was really helpful, although also very challenging. Um, probably the most challenging days were days where I was having a hard time reconciling, I think, what I thought was perhaps legally the best course of action versus what politically was the, the goal that people were trying to achieve. Those were, those were always the most difficult days. The other thing, and this is probably the theme that drove you know, my entire tenureship at EPA, it was halfway through it, uh, we got a little decision called Massachusetts versus EPA, and that's been discussed to death, and I still talk about it all the time. But I, I think from the perspective of this discussion and this audience, what was so significant about that was it really marked the transition, I think, for EPA and for the lawyers at EPA, because, you know, up until that point, up until 2007, um, for the first, you know, 37 years of the agency, they, they kind of did one thing, um, focused on improving the environment by addressing conventional pollutants and things like that with authority that had originally been enacted in the 1970s. This marked, you know, I think the most significant tidal wave and changing the way EPA was going to operate in the future. It was no longer just doing that. There was a whole new branch at EPA, and we were on day one of it, of having to prepare for climate change, prepare for this much more complicated issue where the statutory authority was unclear, where um, where it was a much more global issue, where it was much less a control of a conventional pollutant issue. And how do we, for the very first time, think through the frameworks to develop that? I will tell you, um, we were... I was completely, I won't say we, because I'm sure other people were, I was completely unprepared the morning that Mass versus EPA came out. I thought there was zero likelihood that the, the court was going to issue the decision that way. Um, so that was that was a surprise. But I'm, I'm really incredibly proud of what happened in the follow-up, and that was the best of EPA, in that the, the day, that same day, I was in the White House briefing people on the ramifications of that decision and how the team came together for the first time to really think through what does this mean? What does it mean that we're going to address climate change to come up with the first ever methodologies that the Obama administration ended up relying on in the early years to get a head start on addressing climate change and to be able to do that so quickly, so responsively. That was not me. That was the staff at EPA building me up to be able to help guide through that. 
And what a lot of people don't remember is that in the weeks after Mass versus EPA, uh, President Bush stood up in the Rose Garden and announced the plan to go ahead and regulate carbon to do an endangerment determination. Various circumstances changed that. But I think that's really just important to, to reflect on because it shows how nimble and dedicated that team was to being able to respond to a decision that, frankly, we were completely unprepared for. The the thought, you know, the fact that you say you're unprepared, it's, it's uh, to me, it's interesting because you all, you know, the team is always so prepared and yet you still make your judgments and assessments about what the legal risk will be. And sometimes the Supreme Court in particular will surprise you. And thinking of the parallels between the decision in Mass v. EPA and how that came and, and what that did to rock that administration in that moment. And then the, when the Supreme Court uh, put the stay in place in the Obama administration to prevent review, uh, prevent the clean power plan from going into effect and the, the effect that that had in rocking that administration. And yet how the, the career workforce is often there to say, OK, well, here's what we can do. Uh, here's what we're going to be able to do, notwithstanding that thing that we just, uh, you know, really took us, well, came out of out of left field or, or something that we had not really thought that there was a chance of happening. And uh, that's, I think, what makes the expertise that that lives in the career workforce so important to, to what EPA does day in and day out. Yeah, just to build on that, you know, I think when you work in those jobs, you have a unique perspective. And I think it's a real testament, again, to the career staff. Like I had cases at DOJ. I sweated two, two and a half years of my life around the clock, gave up holidays and weekends to go to far off cities and litigate them and would win and then have reversed by a court of appeal. So you feel like, did I just throw that last two and a half years of my life down a trash can? I had other times where I was representing one thing in the Obama administration, then asked to stand up in court and represent 180 degrees the other thing in the Clinton administration. I'm sorry, in the Clinton administration and do 180 degrees in the Bush administration. And I think it speaks, so I I can be very sympathetic to um, not just attorneys, people who are being asked to kind of invest in things that may not ultimately yield the dividends that the resources suggested or may cause them to take positions that are different than what they'd asked to do before. And again, I think it speaks really highly to the integrity of these teams that that they understand that that is part of doing the job in the government. I think the most important part is that there always be a process. This is something I felt very strongly about, but there always be a process that people be heard, that they have the opportunity to share their views, they have the opportunity to dissent. And if ultimately you make a decision that is inconsistent with their recommendations, that you explain why. Um, You say, I I considered your views. Here's how I took them into account. Here's where, regrettably, I have to disagree. Let's go ahead and do this. And I think having that process is really key to managing those difficult circumstances. So we've talked about a a challenging day. What was your best day looking back? Well, I'd go back to the the mass versus EPA situation. It's one of these things that's very cliche. It started off as a really bad day. And looking back on it today, I'd say it's a really positive day, the way things have played out. Because... Um, it was unexpected. Uh, we were unprepared, but again, I think it's always the most difficult circumstances that where people rise to the best and show what they can do. So I'm really proud of the fact that that same day we were able to educate the white house on the ramifications of that within two or three days, we were able to outline plans, um, within a few weeks to a couple months, the president was able to stand up in the Rose garden and say, this is what we're going to do. No one that I ever worked with at EPA ever said, 
you know, once we got the decision, we're going to challenge the decision. We're not going to implement it. We're going to, you know, find some way to water it down. We understood it was the law of the land. Everybody got on board with that and sprung into action. So that to me was, was the best day. And looking back now on how it had those early days have continued to lay the foundation, particularly in the Obama administration, for allowing them to spring into action, the building upon that work to, to very quickly, you know, address mass versus EPA and use that for as a foundation for other things they did. I just think that was, you know, government action at its best. You mentioned uh, President Bush standing up in the Rose Garden a couple of times. How does it work between EPA and actually getting something that the president, you're getting something in front of the president, getting it to him or uh, eventually her, maybe, uh, in a way that they can actually stand up and then stand for what, what came out of EPA? Well, there was a time in my tenure at EPA where I was probably at the White House at least once a day over a period of weeks or months. I don't remember how long. And a lot of people would say, oh, that sounds pretty interesting and cool. And I would remind them that they never call you over there to give you good news. Um, so if I'm going to the White House, if the general counsel is going to the White House, it's, it's probably not because they want to thank you for something or give you an award. Um, maybe that's happened. It never happened to me. It's because there's probably some significant conflict and tension in the way the agency is wanting to do something versus the way uh, policy directors and, and other officials that say the Office of Management and Budget or OIRA are looking at the issue. And that's perfectly fine. It's, it's, a, it's a terrific thing in our democratic process. And everybody, um, it's a relatively transparent process. And it's not, I'm not here to criticize it um, because it, it's, it's government at its best. And we should feel fortunate that you know, we live in a place like others where we have this tug and back and forth and need for compromise. But I would say the goal of this process is to avoid things getting to the president, that you're working with you know, various um, heads of offices in particularly the Office of Management and Budget, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, and to some extent, the West Wing staff itself, so that you can avoid the escalation to the president. There were a few issues that went that far. I remember watching a, a helicopter fly over the aerial Rio building at the time at EPA, and 10 minutes later, uh, a call coming from the White House with a decision the president had made on the ground on some issue that was outstanding. But you wanted to kind of use that as a last, as a last resort. Looking back, if there was something that you could change about your tenure or your experience, what would it be? It's a really good question. And, you know, there's something I would do differently today if I could answer it that way. Sure. Um, looking back, there's something I would definitely do differently. When I was there, I felt very strong. There's different philosophies in how lawyers um, influence their clients. And I was more in favor of a passive approach at the time, maybe because that was my heritage as a career attorney. Um, and I would say, you probably heard me say this on many occasions, that our job was to lay out a range of options to identify the risk of those range of options, um, you know, the risk associated with them. But the client got to decide and then we were there to implement If they take the risk, we'll do the best job we can. But it's up to them to take the risk. I feel differently about that today, to be honest. Um, not that I would have changed at the time, but I think circumstances are different today. I don't think we have... Uh, we, we have the benefit of time as much to be kind of using courts to try out new legal opinions and to, to seesaw back and forth on pushing this versus pushing that. Um, if I were there today, and this is not talking about the Trump administration or Obama administration, people know me, I wouldn't be sending subtle messages about that. But, but if I were there today, I would be much more, I think, uh, proactive in terms of saying, yeah, this is a high risk option. And I don't think we should do it because, because what we should do is find an option that maybe gets us 
80% of the way we want to go, but we know we can implement it. We can bring uncertainty. We can bring certainty. The uncertainty in the seesaw of regulations, the time that's been lost, I think a lost decade in terms of moving things forward and then having some things move back and other things move forward. If you look at the momentum of environmental law, we really haven't advanced much on the whole in some time. I, I think I think we need to change the direction on that. And I think part of that has been using the courts as test beds, you know, experimenting with theories, pushing theories where you knew the risk was really high. I would take a much more cautious approach today just to continue to make progress and to um, make sure we're doing things that are going to stand judicial review and be implemented. And that's good for the environment because it brings results and it's good for the regulated community because they need certainty, whether they like, like the outcome or not. I think the, the thing you'll hear the most they don't want is uncertainty. And I think we've been working in a sphere of regulatory uncertainty now for, for many years. That's certainly something that in my 13 months in private practice, I've come to understand better uh, the impact of uncertainty on companies and businesses that are trying to comply and trying to make decisions about investments and the like to be able to have uh, a facility or a, a operation that complies and then they want it to be able to know that they're going to be able to comply. That's going to be in compliance for a couple of years at least. And the, the never-ending back and forth of litigation and overturning rules doesn't give anyone that uh, on yeah. either side of the issue. But looking, uh, you mentioned the role of the OGC attorney in providing sort of straight-up legal advice and leaving it as options or potentially weighing in on what your recommendation is versus potentially policy advice. Uh, were you suggesting that you think that the career staff, because one of the things that we've always heard uh, and we often heard, but every general counsel had a slightly different viewpoint on was we don't give policy advice as lawyers, we give legal advice. And then people had different uh, tolerances for how much you could give up policy advice or how what the construct it was. When you were reflecting back on that, were you suggesting that you would have a different standard for the staff attorneys, or were you saying more at your level that you would have done it differently? I would have done it differently. I wouldn't want to okay. put the staff in that position. I wouldn't want to, because the staff have you know long-term career interests over many administrations, many decades. Um, I would look to them for advice, but I think what I'm thinking is, you know, if I were to do it again, and maybe I'm a more confident person now, I'm, I'm a lot older and more experienced, but I would probably be... Um, more aggressive in going to bat and saying, this is your range of options. You want to pick this really risky one. Um, here's why I'm not comfortable with that. And here's why I think at the end of the day, this risky option is not the right way to go. I think, Kevin, for the very reasons you're talking about, nobody wants the uncertainty of saying, well, here's a rule that sounds really great, um, but it's going to be held up in legal limbo for the next three to five years. We've got to make investments in the meantime and so on. So that's one reason. There's there's the interest in the regulated community. But let's not forget, at the end of the day, this is all about environmental protection. It's about health and safety. And I, despite Mass versus EPA and some progress that's been made with you know some rules there, I, I think if we look at each decade of environmental protection, we've lost some time here in the last decade or longer in terms of moving the ball forward on environmental protection. And I think we have some catching up to do. I'm going to say it again. That's not a subliminal slam on the Trump administration. It's not a subliminal slam on the Obama administration or the Bush administration. But I, I think objectively, it'd be hard for someone to disagree. If you look at kind of the trajectory of environmental regulations, they've been pretty much in a gridlock uh, for some time, partially because of legal issues, partially because of the courts. And and we, I don't think we have the luxury of time to keep that status quo for, for much longer. We should be just moving things forward. So looking back, uh, 
Is there something that stands out as what you would say you're most proud of from your time as the general counsel? Cameron, we talked about kind of setting the stage after Mass versus EPA. I, I think this was a transitionary time where we had to evolve the agency into a new direction, which continues to this day, continue, was a major theme of the Obama administration. Um, so setting the stage for that, I think, number one. Uh, I think that was a historical place and time. The second thing I would say is something a little more arcane, unless you really know me, is um, I, the, the work I did in China. I um, worked with Steve Wolfson at EPA and some others to create something called the China Environmental Law Initiative. I'm really proud of the fact that my predecessors, Scott Fulton, Abby Garbeau, Matt Leopold, have all continued to prioritize that. I go back to China frequently for work, and I've seen the progress and the significant development. I think a lot of that has to do with EPA and the role it took in collaborating and sharing. And that's been a very significant part of my life since I left EPA helping vulnerable populations with the environmental rule of law. And I think the last thing I'd say is, when I was there, we had the opportunity to really focus on um, what I think is the most important part of any leader's job, which is uh, succession planning and recruitment. We initiated the first honors program in a long time to retain new attorneys. We looked to promote people such as you. I remember you were a younger lawyer at the time and you had a, an opportunity for promotion. And, and uh, even though you were a bit younger in your career than some others, we, we decided to give you that opportunity and you've never proven us wrong. We've been real proud of you. Um, but I know there's lots of lawyers who are still there who've benefited from these uh, recruitment opportunities, from these professional development opportunities. So the legacy you leave, it's not about me or what I did or anything I've done has long been probably forgotten or irrelevant. But there's a lot of really strong people there that help help bring in to the agency. And that's probably what I'm most proud of is hearing all their successes and what they're up to and running into them um, and, and knowing we've left that behind. I can I can still remember that interview uh, with you and Anne for the for my first management job, and you all took a chance on a pesticide lawyer who wanted to be a water lawyer, and I, I've appreciated that. It's been good for me. One of the best decisions I've ever made. So. Uh, thank you. Um, we talked a lot about looking back today, a lot of reflection. Uh, we're doing this podcast series. It's motivated in part by the fact that EPA is about to turn 50 in December of 2020. Uh, if you looked forward and you looked at the next 50 years, what would you say is on EPA's horizon? Well, well this will probably, it's a little painful to say, and it's a little, probably going to be a little painful for my friends to hear, but I do think there has to be some significant transformation and evolution if the agency is going to fulfill its mission of, of really doing what it was designed to do, which is ensure the protection of, of health and safety, uh, not only in the United States, but I think, I think that mission is expanding globally. I, I do think that to no fault of the agencies were working with an inefficient model where they're trying to solve really big global problems like climate change without the, the legal tools and the resources really set up to do so. So I think there's other parts of the federal government like in NOAA and DOE and Defense Department that's also focused on these issues. So I, I do think there needs to be a transformation, whether those topics are brought in EPA and given more legal authority, whether those are, you know, divided off into another um, kind of global environmental agency that's focused specifically on these issues with the great EPA staff and resources. I, th I just think there has to be that, that transformation that Congress is going to have to help with as well if we're going to get serious, because otherwise they're just working to solve a really big problems without the tools and the resources that, that are guaranteed to ensure they have the success that they need. Well, Roger, thank you uh, for your time. It's been great catching up with you today and great uh, looking back and also 
that's something you've left us with something to think about for the future for sure so thank you for your time and i appreciate uh, the folks from eli for helping us out today and stay tuned for the next podcast about a month from now thank you kevin thank you for tuning in to people places planet pod brought to you by the environmental law institute we would like to hear from you so please send us your questions comments and ideas to podcast at eli.org And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.